If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What did Beatrix Potter have to do with the protection and preservation of the English countryside? Well, if you're only aware of her from her children's books, then a lot more than you might think. Potter is one of four women featured in a new book by Professor Matthew Kelly, The Women Who Saved the English Countryside. The book champions some of the figures who campaigned to protect our natural beauty spots over their last 150 years. And David Musgrove spoke to Matthew to find out more. Your new book is entitled The Women Who Saved the English Countryside, and, you, and you're picking up on, on four women through the book. Could you very briefly introduce us to the four women of your title, do you think? Yes, absolutely. So, yes, the, the, there are four. And the title, there's a touch of hyperbole in the title. Did these four women save the English countryside? I mean, the answer, in a sense, is no. But it does raise the question of what they thought they were trying to save you know, it, it from. And it takes us to that historical question. So my four women, the first one is fairly well known and certainly quite well known among 19th centuryists and enthusiasts for the National Trust. And that's Octavia Hill. And Octavia Hill was this sort of remarkable... I suppose philanthropist, active really from the 1870s right up until her death um, just before the First World War. And she involved herself in both inner city housing projects, um, the um, opening up of what she would call open space or green space, the opening of access to that for ordinary people, particularly in the context of urbanisation and suburbanisation. You know, this is a great period of very rapid house building. Think of red brick Victorian houses that we associate with, you know, British British cities, particularly, you know, obviously the Victorian phases of those cities' development. And those houses, of course, were built primarily on green fields. And Octavia Hill was acutely, you know, conscious of this. So what do we protect as that almost inevitable expansion um, takes takes place? So she did a lot of work in and around London, around pu- establishing public parks, um, and and so on, and she was very keen that these were supervised spaces. She was she was had this great consciousness of the need to ensure and to nurture good and um, behaviour. But later in her career, I suppose in the second half of her career, she becomes more unfocused on green spaces outside of towns and cities and the threats to them. And it's that that makes her one of the three founders of the National Trust in the mid. 1890s. So Octavia Hill is one of the absolute pioneers um, of the trust. And it's under her influence that it starts to buy or acquire land in the Lake District, um, in in Kent, in the West Country, down Devon and Cornwall, um, and so on. So she's the first of of my women, so to speak. The second one is, of course, incredibly famous, and most of you probably will have heard of her, and that's Beatrix Potter, whom we, of course, associate with her so-called little books you know, the Peter Rabbit books and and so on. And Potter, of course, is really closely associated with the Lake District, which is in the northwest of England, again, actually just, just south um, of the Scottish 
border. And so she's got this close association with, with the Lake District. But perhaps not quite as well known is 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 incredibly important role she played in the National Trust's expansion um, in the Lake District in the 1920s and 1930s. So prior to the First World War, she bought basically a couple of farms for herself. And this was part of a sort of long ambition she had, which reflected her family background in many ways, to, to become established in the Lake District, you know, as, as a farmer, and particularly as a sheep farmer. But then in the, in the 1920s, she uses some of her great wealth, which she inherited, and which she earned, um, to help the national to, to acquire actually, first, a really large enclosed farm, the Troutbeck Park Farm, that she uh, buys effectively for herself in 1923. But then at the end of the 1920s, she collaborates with the National Trust in the acquisition of the Monk Coniston Estate, which is a great sprawling agricultural estate sort of just north of, of Coniston um, Water. And it contains some really sort of iconic sites. And to put it simply, the National Trust didn't have the cash. They were afraid it would be bought up by somebody who would allow it to develop in in not very sympathetic ways. Um, Beatrix Potter hated bungalows, especially bungalows with red roofs. And um, and so she works very closely with the trust in the 20s and 30s through, you know, the management of Troutbeck and Monk Coniston. Um, and then on her, on her death during the Second World War, she leaves all of this property to, to the National Trust, co- attaching various conditions to it. So we have here, with the first two figures, we have, we have a story that is about the National Trust. It's about voluntarism. It's about, if you like, the exercise of a certain kind of liberal ethos where the private individual works in the interest of the community um, as a whole. Just for, for listeners outside of the, uh, the UK... The National Trust. Just just give us a, a, a little bit more on what the National Trust is and, and the role it plays in British national life. Good question. So the National Trust, I think I'm right in saying this, remains Britain's largest membership organisation. And the big cliche that's always said about the National Trust is that the British love a bargain. And, um, and, if, and as a member of the National Trust, you basically have free access to hundreds of different National Trust properties, which includes great stately homes, houses of historic um, significance and so on. But for my purposes, what's most important about the National Trust is its acquisition of land. Um, and then it's management um, of of that land in order to sustain both sustainable agriculture on the one hand and public access um, on on the other. So the National Trust is one of Britain's great landowners. Now it's established, as I said, in established in 1895 and its acquisition of land is either through donation or purchase, which is effectively spending the membership dues um, that it's able to collect. So in a sense, if you are a member of the National Trust, you are the part owner of this vast estate that, you know, stretches um, across the country. And the National Trust exists in a quite complicated space between voluntary private action um, on the one hand, and on the other hand, it's and it is it's a charity, but on the other hand, it is also protected by statute. And so National Trust land is held, broadly speaking, in perpetuity, and that is protected, and that is protected by law. So it has a kind of unique um, status that was established um, in the early 20th century, and it's just grown and grown and grown over time. Um, I mean, one of the big kind of cliches about the National Trust, and there's a lot of truth in it, is that it acquires a lot of its the sort of grand houses after the Second World War, um, because the owners of those houses or their you know, descendants were unable to afford the high death duties um, of the period, inheritance tax. And so, you know, the way in which you dealt with this large inheritance tax was, in fact, a uh, provision was created to allow the transfer of the ownership of these houses to the National Trust in lieu of death taxes. And there's no doubt that that's so sometimes you get these great philanthropic gestures of handing the estate over to the National Trust, but it's very often underpinned by a fact that, you know, you couldn't afford to pay the taxes. But as I say, it, it's the land it's the land they hold that's most important to the book I've written, rather than the grand houses, which sometimes, you know, in the public's perception characterises the trust. 
if you're in any way an outdoors sort of person in in Britain, if you're going for a walk or a, a ramble or anything like that, you, you're going to come across some National Trust land pretty soon. So they're very important, and Octavia Hill and, and Beatrix Potter um, are, are, are important players in those stories. But let's let's move on to um, your your second tranche of of women who saved the countryside. <laughs> so these these figures are much much less well known, and I think the, in some ways the story that I've been able to tell through them is less well known, and that's mainly that's a sort of post. 45 story. It's a post-war story. Um, so the first of them is, is Pauline Dower. And Pauline Dower was the most prominent and the longest serving woman on the National Parks Commission, which was established by the post-war Labour government um, in 1949. And, and my argument is that the creation of the National Parks Commission should be seen as part of the broader politics that sees the establishment of the welfare state, the National Health Service, and so on. So it's an aspect of post-war British social democracy. And Pauline Dower is a really interesting figure. Her father was Charles Trevelyan, and the, 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 the Trevelyans and the Dowers always say Trevelyan, and that reflects the family's Cornish background. So she was the, she's the daughter of Charles Trevelyan, who owned um, Wallington, which is a great estate um, in Northumberland, so up in the, again up in the north, far north of, of, um, um, of England. And he had progressed from pre-war, pre-First World War liberal politics to interwar uh, socialist labour politics. And he was very keen both on the trust, but also on the, on the National Trust, but also on the fact that the state should intervene to protect landscapes on behalf um, of, of the people. And so that's her father. And then she marries... John Dower and John Dower is very much caught up in the in in the kind of preservationist politics of the interwar years. He's a key figure in that movement. And during the Second World War, he writes the Dower Report, which lays the groundwork um, for the establishment of the National Parks Commission. And he tragically dies of TB more or less as he finishes the second of his great reports. And Pauline, of course, is you know plunged. Um, into mourning, but it was recognised that she played a, quite a key role in her husband's career up to that to that point, and then so she was then invited on to the National Parks Commission, effectively in um, his place. But she goes to serve on it for almost um, twenty years, and Pauline Dow was one of the key figures then in the designation in the 1950s, particularly, of the national parks in England and Wales. And just to give you one example, for example, the first time that the the commission really has to defend itself in public is during 1950, when it's building up to the designation of the first national park, which is the Peak District National Park. And Pauline Dower represented the commission at the sort of public um, inquiry. And one of the things I sort of look at in the book is that sort of, is that, quite long process whereby she basically has to go out into public and be interrogated by representatives of various interests, farmers, businesses and so on, that would fall within this new park who were concerned about what effect it might have on them. And she faces quite a lot of fairly straightforwardly kind of sexist um, questioning, which she deals with really effective. So what we have in Pauline Dower is effectively a civil servant unexpectedly, in a sense, she has this thrust upon her in, in early middle age, and she goes on to play an incredibly important role in that, that development of, this, of this, this, this political process. Sylvia Sayer, my fourth protagonist, activist, um, she was the long-term chair of the Dartmoor Preservation Association, and Dartmoor National Park was one of, if you like, the big four, the first four parks to be designated, so it's the Peak District National Park, um, the Lake District National Park, Snowdonia National Park, which is, you know, the mountain range in Wales, and then Dartmoor National Park in Devon in the southwest of England. And these four national parks are all designated in very in quite quick succession um, in the very early 19, 1950s. And they were symbolic, in a sense, of the government's commitment to the, commitment to the national park ideal. Now, Sayer, in a sense, comes out of at least in Devon terms or Dartmoor terms, uh, preservationist royalty. You know, her, her, her grandfather particularly was, had been a really key figure in Dartmoor preservationism at the turn of the 20th century, and she very much inherits that mantle. And she is the chair of the Dartmoor Preservation Association from the 1940s through to the early 1970s. And she's a brilliant and very committed campaigner who combines being incredibly difficult with 
being impeccably polite and, you know, writing these wonderfully sort of articulated letters that you find in Whitehall files um, at the National Archive, where one way or another she was, you know, defending Dartmoor against various kinds um, of threat. And I think, I think the thing that ties the four women together... Um, so I've made this distinction between, I suppose, the, if you like, liberal voluntarism of Hill and Potter and the more statist social democratic work of Dower and Sayer. You know, they're committed to the National Park ideal. But I think what all of them are hugely conscious of is is the threat to the countryside of modernity, of modern developments, which are both private and public. You know, math, this, the post-war period sees massive infrastructural projects, you know, things, you know, reservoirs, commercial um, forestry, new power stations, pylons, all of that sort of stuff that sees, in a sense, modernity encroaching more and more, um, you know, on the, the rural. But rather than them being, these figures being reactionary, um, being against change, I actually think they are, in a sense, equally modern, in that what they're trying to do is they're trying to articulate a set of, if you like, civic rights, of, of rights of the citizen, what, does the, what can the modern citizen expect of, in the case of Dara and say, of the state? What should the state be providing for them? How do we balance the interests of, you know, individual citizens against people needing clean, fresh water and electricity and all of that stuff? So these are competing, if you like, modernities, rather than, I think, rather than it being modernity, progress, development on the one side and reaction on the other. Okay, so we've been introduced to the characters and I think you described them as a a public moralist, a philanthropist, a technocrat and an activist. So it kind of, it shows the the progression of of, of perhaps change. And you mentioned there the the theme that binds them is is, uh, reaction against modernity or or not being reactionary, but but modernity being something that they're, they're concerned about. Are they all, do they all share the same sort of views about what they are actually trying to protect or conserve? Um, I think to a large extent, actually, they do. And I think that's what makes the century or so, when they're most active, quite coherent. Um, And that's why I talk about them in the book as preservationists rather than conservationists. Um, The way they look at the landscape is broadly... It's, it's, it's firstly, it's aesthetic. There's a particular set ideas of beauty of the landscape, which is, I suppose, is a combination of certain kinds of farming and that sort of romantic ideal of uplands that we can kind of trace back to kind of Wordsworth and the romantics um, in, in the early 19th century. And I think they're all committed to that particular sort of idea of landscape and the idea that certain certain kinds of agriculture, certain kinds of farming produces this particular rural ideal, which is a very, I think, a very English rural ideal. And they are all prim- primarily active, of course, in um, England. So there's a particular idea of the landscape, which they think is produced through particular kinds of farming. They're especially committed to common rights and the exercise of common common rights. Um, however, uh, they're, also, they're also to varying degrees committed to the politics um, of access Octavia Hill is absolutely committed to access. That's the whole purpose, in a sense, of her politics, is is that she believes that access to green space, access to open space, um, creates healthy bodies and healthy minds. And this is a very contemporary discourse. You know, there's a lot of talk at the moment about how people need access to green space for, you know, mental health, good mental health and all of that sort of stuff. Octavia Hill is is arguing pretty much the same things in the 1870s and the 1880s and 1890s. Beatrix Potter, I think, is less committed to the national picture. Her priorities are absolutely the Lake District, and they are about preserving a particular kind of life in the Lake District that that leads to the production, if you like, of a particular kind um, of landscape. And I don't think it would be fair to say that she sees access as a necessary evil. Um, I think she is committed to access, but I think she's actually a little bit like Hill. She's quite keen that this is quite sort of closely managed and that the Trust develops ways of of managing access. There's quite funny kind of correspondence where she talks about, you know, the kinds of signposts she likes and doesn't like, and uh, she doesn't like enamel, 
which is, you know, I think people are quite keen on enamel now for its sort of retro feel, whereas Potter thinks it's a bit of an abomination in the 1930s. Enamel signs she gets very exercised about. She doesn't like tarmacadamed roads. She definitely doesn't like buses very much. But she's, but she, so her is like we need to preserve a landscape largely as it is. We need to sort of resist forms of modernization and enable access along the way. Now, I think, I think. Dower and Sayer, Dower certainly is more positively engaged in the politics of access. Um, so, for example, she part of her job on the commission is not just to designate parks, but it's also to designate um, long-distance footpaths. And so, for example, she's involved in the, the process that takes almost 20 years to designate the um, Pennine Way, which goes north across sort of northern England. It's a, lo- a long kind of footpath that takes a couple of weeks to complete. And as she works works really hard on getting that together. I'd say a simile, but I think, the, I think the key point is that what they see is threatening the countrysides that they want to preserve changes. And so their politics then inevitably reflects that, that change in threat. So whereas with Hill and um, Potter, it's kind of suburbanisation. Um, it's, it's suburbanisation, and then Potter particularly dislikes the possibility that the Lake District gets sort of chopped up into little plots that people can buy and build houses on in a sort of willy-nilly way. As I said, she hates, you know, bungalows. Um, And she's part of this sort of broad opposition in the 1930s to sort of clutter in the countryside, advertising hoardings, excessive signposting, holiday homes and so on that kind of spoils what she sees I suppose as the purity of the landscape but as I've already suggested with Dower and Sayer they might be trying to protect the same things and they might have a more positive attitude in terms of access but the threats are these big state infrastructural developments and that includes large-scale commercial forestry which I think we should probably in this context think about as a form of, you know, industrial use, if you like, you know, of the countryside, the coniferization of great swathes of, of upland. So I've already mentioned, you know, reservoirs, forestry, electricity, cabling, all of that kind of stuff. But also the way the land has been locked up during the Second World War by the military. And both Dower and Sayer are keen to see if you like, the armed forces put back in their box to establish them territorially as they were in the 1930s, rather than this great expanded footprint that they have in the 19, over the course of the Second World War. But that's really difficult because the Cold War and the sort of development of new technologies, for example, you know, just longer range field artillery, for example, means that the armed forces, despite the end of the war, actually need more space. And what's sometimes obscured, obscured in the way people think about post-war Britain, is, of course, Britain is involved in a string of wars of colonial retention in the 1950s and 60s. I mean, the military is still really active. And, you know, there's a, so it's, there's both a Cold War context, but there's also this, po- this colonial context in which, you know, the, the army is effectively still at war in various parts of the world and still needs these training grounds and so on. So, so yeah, so I think that's my broad point, is that, the thinking, there's a lot of continuity in thinking, but I think the sense of threat evolves quite significantly. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. One of the things that happens in the US is actually there is an attempt from the late 19th century onwards not to fully reproduce, if you like, European patterns of land ownership, you know, whereby effectively almost everything's in, in private hands. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. 
that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. So you talked about um, a preservation of a, a certain ideal of the English landscape as being one driver, and then also a sense of allowing access for for the wider public to to enjoy this uh, this, this landscape. I guess what you haven't really mentioned, and listeners might be surprised about, is uh, any interest in environmentalism or environmental protection, which obviously is a very modern concern like we're all worried about today was that not something that was something that that came to to the forefront of of these people's minds or or does it develop as as our century from 1870 through to 1970 progresses i i think this is one of the things that's most interesting about it so i think i I think the thing that i think is helpful to distinguish between is if you like environmental thinking and ecological thinking um so i think they are environmentalists um but they're their environmentalism, which you know I've characterised as preservationism, um, is as you know is as we've discussed predicated on these you know these particular commitments to a certain idea of of the countryside and, and so on and so forth. And and I think somewhat you know Sayer's retirement as chair of the Dartmoor Preservation Association in 1973 is really good timing. Because I think, you know, his, it's for my argument, because historians have established really that it's the early 1970s that sees this kind of turn towards a more ecological or conservation, nature conservation based um, environmentalist and, you know, environmentalism. And, you know, you see things like the establishment of Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth, Green Parties, um, magazines like The Ecologist, then later in the 1970s, The Vol. This is all happening in the, um, really from the early 1970s, you know, onwards. And, you know, I think Hill, Potter, and Sayer are fairly oblivious to to that... Sh- well, I mean, obviously those that were long dead were fairly oblivious to that change in thinking. But um, I suppose the way, the way to think about it in the British picture, 1960s, 1970s, is that what starts to happen in the 60s into the 70s, is you get the emergence of a conservationism that is a response to agricultural intensification. So, you know, in Britain that takes the form of, you know, grubbing up hedgerows to make larger fields, um, the use of chemical pesticides and herbicides, you know, and, and so on. I mean, this is a story that's familiar to readers of Rachel Carson's, you know, Silent Spring, for instance, that's published in the sort of early 1960s. And we see this kind of politics playing out in Britain, starting to play out in Britain in the 60s and 70s. So you get this shift, I think, whereby somebody like, you know, Dower or Sayer would, broadly speaking, see farmers and particular kinds of farming, admittedly, creating what I like to call, you know, charismatic landscapes, the kind of landscapes that's valued, you know, so to have the Lake District that people love requires having sheep and cattle on it. Now, that's become contentious in recent years. But at the moment, but you know, in the time we're talking about, that's pretty uncontentious, you know, that it's, this is a grazed landscape, and its beauties arise out of its use, or at least the interaction between, you know, human and non-human nature produces this particular kind of, of natural beauty that people find very, you know, very, very appealing. And I think what happens is, in a sense, agriculture gets ahead of that. And um, and it's like it's a classic thing almost with everything. You know, people talk about how, uh, you know, the internet develops too quickly for the regulators. I think there's a way in which we can think about the development of post-war agriculture, um, which of course is partly state subsidised or significantly state state subsidised, getting ahead, if you like, of environmental you know regulation. And and there is no question that a lot of harm is done to the natural environment um, and continues to be. And the state, in a sense, or you know, is still trying to keep up, in a sense, 
with with that and to try to find find ways of you know preventing further harm and and reversing reversing the harm caused by agricultural intensification so i think that's where i think that's a way in which we can pop we can sort of place them historically in this particular kind of century and then see how the debate has you know since moved on that's really interesting. Um, this, this is an impossible and a stupid question, uh, but I'm going to ask you anyway, because um, I'm asking you to get into the minds of, of Octavia Hill and Beatrix Blossom, but what, what would they think about um, the modern um, uh, trend towards rewilding then? So they're trying to, they're trying to you know, protect a, a landscape which some would say is, or in the Lake District, for instance, with, with um, hill sheep farming is, uh, is not necessarily aligned with certain ecological um, uh, uh, side of things, is it? So, so what, what, what would their view be? What would their... I mean, so it's impossible to say what their, their view would be, and you know that's the answer to the question, but... <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. But I think... But it actually is really interesting because given what I've just said about post-war agricultural, you know, intensification, I think very often, actually, what... There are, of course, radical rewilders out there, and um, and you know they've had a huge effect on the way these issues are talked about. And I think they've been enormously um, influential, my view, in largely positive positive ways. But of course, and one of the things that's, that's key to that thinking is what you know George Monbiot, love him or loathe him, um, I'm quite keen on him, describes as shifting baseline syndrome. And you know this is this idea that we lose sight of what's been lost, and quite often our kind of rural, if you like, or country countryside ideals are the ones of our childhood and then and we sort of see a decline you know since then and you hear people older people will talk about the species that they don't see anymore and the flowers they don't see anymore and all of that stuff and, and I think that's helpful to think about because Octavia Hill and Beatrice Potter would have seen a more ecologically rich and ecologically diverse landscape in terms of flora and fauna than we would see now so i think it's possible to well we can speculate that i think they would see the decline in biodiversity as shocking um and i think they would certainly pop them down in you know rural England today and i think they would be taken aback by what's what's been lost um over the last century so i think in that way we can perhaps say yeah maybe they would have been quite keen on aspects you know of rewilding they were both cautious small c conservative figures i think potter probably was a large c conservative figure as well there were ways in which they were you know so, so, so one wouldn't expect to find them if you like on the most obvious if you like, radical fringes of whatever contemporary politics is. But I think one would expect them to be shocked by how things were, say, in 1900 and how they are, you know, now. So I think that's a way of, in a sense, thinking about thinking about their attitudes, to their possible attitudes to rewilding through this kind of, you know, shifting baselines. Another theme in the book is the question of whether preservation is the domain of voluntary action or state action and, and how that sort of changes and how that debate happens. So what's, what's the, what is the story there? I mean, this is a really complicated story. And, I, and you're right that it absolutely, it sort of runs, it runs um, through, through the book. Um, so if we start, I suppose, with the establishment um, of, of the National Trust and one of the reasons why Octavia Hill and the others established the National Trust was it was a response to, I suppose, the limited achievements of the quite effective lobby to prevent the further dissolution of common rights and the enclosure of common land. And what's really crucial to understand about common rights is that they are rights held by commoners, not by people, you know, at large. So we can walk on common land, but that's a sort of secondary right the reason why it's open is because a particular group of people hold, you know, com- common rights. And I mean, it's well known, of course, but it in a sense becomes politically significant in the late 19th century. If Parliament, on behalf of a landowner, dissolves common rights, allowing enclosure, allowing development and so on, with the dissolution of those common rights attached to a small number of people who who have rights over that common, then the rights of everyone to access the land goes because they don't have any rights. So the National Trust, this, the thinking in some ways underpins the National Trust is a fairly simple one, that we need to own the land. We need to own it outright to, to, to ensure, that, ensure continued access and protect it from certain kinds of development and, and so on. So there's a way in which we can see the National Trust as a response to a perceived 
failing on behalf of the state or the limited the limited effectiveness of a certain kind of lobbying around common land but then over the course of particularly in in the 20s and the 30s um it, i think it become it, you know you, you get the emergence of a lobby that among other things is is promoting the idea of national parks and there are organizations which are still going today like for example the campaign for the protection of rural england campaign for the protection of rural wales the cpre you know these these organizations sort of recognize that the only way in which we can protect what they see as the rights of all citizens is through state action is through the state basically establishing a new set of I think what we could talk about as citizens' rights, rights you know of a- of access through the designation um, of of, na- of national parks, um, and so that a lobby develops in the twenties and thirties that's really quite effective that is placing pressure on governments to introduce the new new protections, if if you like, to promote this new kind of rights based agenda. Um, around around access and um, and in the end the the which we might come on to a bit later the national park system is in a sense a compromise between proprietors and you know the public the particular form um, it takes um, in England and then as I mentioned you know with somebody like Sylvia Sayer Sayer is a lobbyist she's a campaigner and what she sees her role as primarily is holding the park authorities to account you know are they are they and by extension the government living up to the national park ideals that they are supposed to protect and so there is this dynamic at work there between between a, a between well it's, it's it's post-war pressure group politics between pressure that preservation organizations the cpre are able to put government under through publicity, campaigning, you know, rousing public opinion, and so on and so forth. So there's a kind of constant sort of dynamic between the two. There's a shift after the period of, you know, after, again, there's a shift from the 1970s onwards, whereby the government tries to establish a less confrontational politics around preservation, I suppose, and particularly sort of within the parks, whereby every development doesn't lead to a big standoff between the preservation associations on the one hand and the developer, developer, which was quite often um, an agent of the state, you know, a water authority or an electricity authority or something like that, um, and so that everything doesn't become a great big conflict. And so what they try to introduce is sort of more developed systems of consultation, of partnership. You know, then in the 1990s, we get the idea of stakeholders. And so there's this attempt to evolve a more consensual consultation-based approach to planning. Now, it's a big open question as to whether people think that's effective or not, whether they think that really changes the balance of power away from, if you like, government and landed interests and everybody else. But that attempt to try to, in a sense, take the heat out of some of these kind of conflicts and to make them, um, and to sort of institutionalise consultation and a more kind of consensual approach to things. It's a, it's a, it's an open question as to whether it succeeded or not. So I think part of the history that I'm trying to kind of get to grips with here is, is that, is the dynamic between the, the voluntary and the state. And that remains as important today as it has really at any period in the kind of history of environmental politics. So you've outlined there quite, as you said, quite an interesting dynamic between voluntary and state action in terms of uh, countryside preservation in England. And it is worth saying, that, so the, your, your, your focus here is, is mostly England. The title is England rather than Britain, where, where there, there are certain different uh, situations going on uh, elsewhere. You describe the national parks as, as something of a compromise situation, then a move to more or more consensual approaches uh, as, as time progressed. I wonder... Um, is there anything, you know, England doesn't have a, you know, it's not a peculiarly English trait to be able to compromise and reach consensus, but but does is, is England, does it have a, a particularly unique approach to countryside preservation versus other other nationalities, other nations? I mean, you talked about commons there a fair bit. Some, somewhere like the United States wouldn't have that same system of, of common access to land, I guess. So so how, do, how does it compare? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, so reluctant to go anywhere near the idea of uniqueness and um but i think the i think the comparison with the us is is a really helpful one um you know the 
the US and and also, you know, around the same time, Canada, you know, sort of pioneer in a sense, pioneer national parks. And um, and the, the big difference between North American national parks, you know, and British ones, and there are now national parks in Scotland as well, and there's been there are efforts to have have a park um, designated in Northern Ireland so there'd be a UK-wide phenomenon. But the big difference, of course, is that, is that the, the national parks in the US contained, are, contained, are comprised of land owned by the federal government, whereas virtually all the, la- all the land in British national parks is privately, privately owned. And a long time ago, um, the geographer sort of the geographer Bill Adams, who's a you know a key figure in the development of our understanding of these processes, he sort of said that, you know, national parks in Britain are, are essentially it's essentially a planning designation. Um now I think since he said that things have moved on a bit in the sense national parks have taken on a sort of a larger um role. But that's certainly how they begin. They begin that within the boundaries of this particular space, there will be special measures, if you like, um, imposed on what can be done by the owners of land within these boundaries. The bar will be set a little bit higher. Whereas, you know, whereas in the States, you know, this is state-owned land and the state, you know, manages, I mean, access. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting, for example, if you compare British national parks to wilderness areas in the US, you know, you need a permit to enter them Numbers are really carefully and controlled. It's an amazing experience to to go and hike there for a few days and camp and everything, which I was lucky enough to do a few years ago in California. Whereas, you know, in Britain, there's no limitations on on how many cars can go into the parks and how many people can access them and all of that. And there was a there's a, of course lots of controversy, of course, during the lockdown when there would be these you know the government would announce there'll be a new lockdown on Monday and everyone went to their favorite place all at once and it was chaos but you know that there's a, that big difference there historically i think it's really interesting you mentioned you mentioned common land one of the things that happens in the us is actually there is an attempt from the late 19th century onwards not to fully reproduce if you like european patterns of land ownership you know whereby effectively almost everything's in in private hands and that's certainly the case um, in britain so taking certain celebrated landscapes into federal own- into the ownership of the federal government was a way in a sense of not being european and it's absolutely a part of the story of the you know the colonization of going west um, in the us now there's a dark side to this history and that's, you know, the exclusion of Indigenous, you know, populations, which was often the violent um, exclusion of, of Indigenous population, of Native Americans from park lands. So you've got this idea of the pristine wilderness in the US, which is actually a wilderness that's partly the product of human-non-human relations, as we like to say, over very long um, periods. So there's a, there's a kind of, there's a story of violent appropriation there by the state in the late 19th century Whereas, you know, in Britain, this doesn't happen until after the war. And there's never any serious question that uh, the creation of national parks in Britain would see the appropriation of private property. It would be coming to terms with it. And so ever since, it's a constant sort of source of tension and conflict between the private and the public in Britain, as affects virtually all aspects of British politics. So, you know, one way, I suppose, of basically understanding the broad, if you like, historical narrative about British national parks is about private property and public access and public rights. And the claim that private property, that land is a form of public good, it is not up to you to do what you like with your land because it has, you know, it's the oldest sort of cliche in the book that land is, of course, a limited quantity there's not unlimited amounts, you know, of it. And and so, yeah, so there's a big difference, I think, between the two, you know, politics there is it's, it's coming to terms, if you like, with with private interests rather than appropriating them. You admitted uh, at the start of the interview that there's maybe a, a touch of hyperbole in terms of the title of the book, The Woman Who Saved the English Countryside, and I'm sure there are other other people you could have chosen and and, uh, and other experts in the topic might uh, might disagree with some of your choices, but but you've chosen four women, and presumably you did that deliberately. Is there something in the fact that they these are all women, uh, and and the and and the fa- and how they played into the into the preservation conservation debate? What's really interesting, I think, is that 
there isn't yet a very clearly established kind of historical narrative that takes for this for this politics. It hasn't, in a sense, been stitched together. So mine is just one attempt to do that. And, and I think that others will make different attempts and take different approaches. And there is, of course, other historical, you know, work um, on this. I wouldn't for a moment suggest my book is the only book that tries to sort of pull this stuff together over a relatively... Um, long period. I mean, I was part. I was partly inspired to write about the women for sort of two reasons. One was that I wrote a book previously about you know Dartmoor and Sylvia Sayer featured in that book, but she was not in a sense foregrounded in the way that she obviously um, is in this one. And I felt that she is this sort of you know key kind of post-war figure, this really effective kind of activist, should be better known historically. And at the same time, I remember there was a bit, there was a conference at, a, I won't name the institution, but there was a quite high profile conference in which the uh, the big sort of round table at the end of the conference, the kind of hour and a half at the end, was entirely comprised of men wearing suits or lumberjack shirts, depending on their, you know, their, their, their kind of propensities. And you just, there's this picture, I think it was possibly as many as 12 men and I thought oh my where this is extraordinary I thought I can't believe you know it's 2017 or whatever it was and and this is this this institution is presenting this picture of environmentalism as base as you know as a load as a lot of middle-aged you know men and I and I was very conscious at that point about the role that Sayer had played on Dartmoor so that was one thing that got me thinking I think there's another thing that and you know it would be wrong of me to say that I in, in, in the last couple of years, how quickly these things have developed. The other thing that's really important at the moment is, you know, is the way in which, in terms of access politics, countryside politics and so on, we're hearing more and more from marginal voices, voices that are marginalised in terms of race and ethnicity, sometimes in terms of physical ability. So there's a, con- you know, there's a kind of critique. There's a critique of a certain kind of access politics that basically says it's white and it's middle class and it's kind of attached to a certain set of, if you like, behavioural norms. And there's the kind of ideal of the knapsack and the OS map and and a certain kind of, you know, I suppose, language that might be quite alienating um, to people. Um, and, and so on the one hand, we're concerned about ableism. The countryside is, the, is a, the countryside is a site of leisure, is a place for kind of, you know, men in walking boots and lumberjack shirts striding out across challenging landscapes and actually if if we recognize everyone needs it then um we need to think challenge those kind of ableist sort of assumptions octavia hill was really conscious of the needs of mothers with children and how they could access green space they obviously can't go climbing munros and uh, so, so so there's that and there's obviously and there's the way in which things like black lives matter and so on has informed kind of debate at the moment about countryside and there's an older discourse about about class of course so I think bringing looking at these four women as in a sense uh individuals who are particularly in terms of Sayer and Hill I suppose in a sense muscling in on a male domain I think actually resonates quite strongly with us today my four women are all privileged they're all middle class, upper middle class in some cases, you know, and that's absolutely the case. And it's almost impossible to imagine their careers had they not been. But they are women at a, at a time when women are politically relatively, you know, marginal, becoming less so, certainly, but still relatively marginal. So I felt if you're going to try to write this history, well, let's get the relatively marginal voice in at the beginning. Uh, well, slightly presumptuously for me to say at the beginning, but let's say in a relatively early stage, first of all. And I hope then that that then resonates with some of our kind of contemporary concerns about whose voices are heard, who is seen out and about in the country, how that challenges certain kinds of assumptions about the the leisured user um, of the English countryside. You mentioned Munro's there in your answer. For anyone who's not familiar, Munro's are mountains in Scotland over a certain height. I don't know what height they are. Do you know? I'm not sure. No, I don't know what height they are either, but people are very keen on how many they've done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's, that's what a Munro is, if anyone was wondering. Right, um, we, we ought to finish up. So I suppose, uh, last question, maybe the question I should have asked to start with, how, how did these women save the English countryside? What's, what's, what's the difference between 1870 and 1970 that you can ascribe to, to the role of, of, of these four women or just more generally the 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 role of the um environmental preservation movement i actually i think the main i think the main achievement is 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 preserving certain kinds of landscapes from certain kinds of 
development and and but also so, so there's preserving but also extending as a result of of that rights of access i mean it really is about with the first two about bringing land into certain kinds of ownership which would then guarantee in perpetuity public access and then obviously with the second two it's about creating a, a statutory framework that ensures um rights of of public access and to some extent has has prevented harmful developments in particularly you know valued um landscapes i mean one of the the negatives of this i suppose is that is the valorizing the valuing of particular kinds of landscape and particularly uplands you know lake district dartmoor and so on um and actually it's keep keep it's very hard to just not keep coming back to what octavia hill is what's so important about octavia hill is she's yes like potter associated with the lake district but she's also very much associated with lands that are under threat of suburbanisation, particularly from London. And I think we need to think, just as we tend to think a lot about national parks and the importance of national parks, we need to be also thinking about those places where people actually go on a day-to-day basis as they step out of their front doors, living in towns and cities. And the little kind of patchworks of access that are allowed are the product of multiple actions taken by people over many many years and, that, and one of the things I think I want people to take away I suppose from book and a sense of their contribution is just how much time and effort and commitment has gone in to creating things that we take for granted and in the grand scheme of things might seem quite modest but they have this huge sort of accumulative um, effect so as partly this is about as with everything the need for eternal vigilance it's so easy to lose what we have but we can also gain through through you know continued sort of work and actually it's very interesting that you know as we having this conversation in 2022 there's actually been a recent revival in the kind of access to the countryside and at access politics in the last sort of year or so there's been a marked revival in that that politics and i think that's very much in continuity with much of what these four were trying to achieve yeah, absolutely. Some interesting books about trespassing and the like. Uh, Indeed, coming through yeah. yeah. So. Not sure what Potter would have thought about that, but, you know. <laughs> um, right, well, well, thank you very much um, for that uh, run-through of some of the, uh, the the themes and trends in uh, in the preservation and uh, um, access to country land in England from 1870 to 1970. So uh, thank you, Matt, uh, Professor Matthew Kelly, and the book The Women Who Saved the English Countryside is available now from Yale University Press. So thank you very much. Brilliant, thank you. That was Matthew Kelly. His book, The Women Who Saved the English Countryside, is out now, published by Yale University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.